You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. I want to talk to you about your relationship with Jesus. And I just sort of felt like I needed to start just by asking you this question. This, this, is, this is where it's been this week as I've been thinking about the, the, um, the chapter that we're in in John. I just want to know, what is your personal relationship with Jesus? And I'm not talking about when you, get sa- when you got saved or, um, or, you know, how redemption has played itself out for you. Those are great stories to tell, but that's not what I'm after this morning. What I really want to know is, what, it, what is your personal relationship with Jesus like right now? What is, you, what is it when you guys get together? What is it like? Um, and I just want to tell a little bit about how it is with me. I know that so, somehow it feels like I'm telling these stories over and over again, but these are my stories. And when I talk about my relationship with Jesus, sometimes I'm talking about the redemption side, but, but I'm just thinking about what it's been like for me personally coming to know who Jesus is and who Jesus is in relationship with me. I can remember, I, I grew up in a mainline you know, Methodist church and... It was a great church, but um, I remember driving out of the parking lot. I must have been 16 or 17 years old. I was close to the end of my time in in youth group. And I was driving out of the parking lot one day, and I remember having this thought. I could still see myself sitting in the parking lot or or, or sitting in my car driving out of the lot, thinking to myself, um, I'm glad they don't talk about Jesus much here because I just don't get that part. That's kind of how I came to the end of my youth group years. Now, they may have been talking about Jesus a lot. I just don't remember it. It didn't absorb for me. All I could think was, I'm just glad they don't talk about it much because I don't really get that part. Maybe that part's not that important to be in, you know, whatever this is that we are. Fast forward probably about 15 years to my seminary days. It was my first semester in seminary. And um, I was in a spiritual formation class. And in the, in the early days of that class, the professor had us get into these small groups. And he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go around your little circle. And I want you to say, I want you to define for the group your understanding of God the Father. And then go back around the circle. Define for the group your understanding of Jesus, the Son. And then go around the group again and, and define for the group your understanding of the Holy Spirit. And when we did God the Father, I was good. I could explain him. When we got to Jesus, I remember being a little shaky. When we got to the Holy Spirit, I remember being almost non-conversant. I had almost no vocabulary for the Holy Spirit, and I was in seminary. <laughs> I went home that night. I still remember it. It was, we were, we were sitting around the, the dinner table in our little duplex, me, you, and Claire Marie, Steve, and, and I remember I was going to say the blessing, and I told my family that night, I don't think I know who Jesus is, and I want to get to know Jesus, and so I'm going to start praying to Jesus. That's the thing. I mean, really, pretty much my whole Christian life up to that point, even though I counted myself a Christian, I used the generic God when I prayed, I didn't use the name of Jesus very often, except that little tag you're supposed to say at the end, which is more of a good luck charm than anything in Jesus' name, because they say you're supposed to say that or nothing you said will happen. Um, so so I, I told my family, I'm going to start praying 
to Jesus because I don't think I know Jesus. I don't, I don't think I know him. And I was in seminary. And so that night I said the blessing to Jesus. And for a lot of prayers after that, I prayed specifically to Jesus. And here's what I can tell you is that I don't know how it happened. Well, here's what I think. You know how when you get those form, letter, uh, those form emails and they've dropped your name in? They, they, they do a digital thing, right? They just drop your name in. Dear Joe, and then they drop your name in. So th thank you, Joe, for reading this. And oh, one more thing, Joe. And you know, you know that this is a form email and that something digital has just dropped your name in. But somehow, just having your name in there, dropped in there, makes it feel more personal to you. You actually read it because your name's in there. It's why they do it. <laughs> they don't do it because they know you. They do it because they know that when you hear your name, you actually get engaged uh, at a more personal level. Well, I don't think Jesus is quite, you know, like me in the digital email but here's what I can tell you. When I started using the name of Jesus in my prayers, all of a sudden we got a lot closer. I mean, like it happened really fast. We got a lot closer. And all I did was say his name. Reminds me of that song, Defender, where that, that, the chorus of that, that song is, and all I did was praise. All I did was uh, worship. All I did was bow down. All I did was stay still. All I did was calling the name of Jesus, and Jesus showed up in a really different way in my relationship to him. So now fast forward, it's been about, I don't know, maybe 12 years ago, and we're down at the Maxwell House. We've been at the Maxwell House a long time. We were down at the Maxwell House, and back in those days, we used to have a worship service and a meal on Sunday nights at least once a month, and, and, um, and that night, about 100 residents showed up, and uh, we fed them, and then we had a worship service, and, and slowly, you know, after you do the meal part, people would begin to trickle out, but, but everything was over with, and there were still 50 or 60 people in the room, and we'd handed out cards to them that night. We were just trying to get to know them better, and so we'd handed out these cards and just asking them, where are you in your relationship with Jesus, and, you know, where are you, and what do you want in terms of spiritual formation here at the Maxwell House, and I don't remember what else we asked, but we got those cards back, and somewhere during the course of that time that they were still in the room, I had flipped through the cards, and I realized there were a lot of people who either didn't have a relationship or they didn't have a fresh relationship with Jesus, and so I just felt moved by the Holy Spirit during that during that time we were together, to just ask if there's anybody who wants to receive their, you know, a fresh life in Christ or to renew their life in Christ, and then I want you to stand up. So I, I did that. I, we got to the end of this time, and I just said, if, if, if you are ready to give your life to Jesus or to renew your life in Christ, I just want to ask you to stand right where you are. And about eight people stood up, and that was really awesome. But after the service was over, after everything was over and people were leaving, a guy we all know really well, Mr. Leroy, he's still down there. He still lives there. Mr. Leroy, he came to me and he said, I stood up tonight because I thought I knew Jesus, but I don't think I really do. I know a Jesus, but I don't think I know the Jesus. And that changes everything. And that moment, I mean, him saying that to me, that changed everything for me. I, said to, I went home. I was like really rattled by that thought. I know, a, do I know the Jesus? Do I know 
the Jesus, or I just have some idea of Jesus that feels right to me, and that's what I'm going with. And um, Chris said this to me yesterday. We were talking, and, and he said, you know, I, I think you know whether it's a Jesus or the Jesus just by whether you ever hear any chastisement from the Holy Spirit. If, if Jesus never disagrees with you, it's possible you might know a Jesus, not the Jesus. I went home that night, and I, I, I decided, I made my own personal commitment to read the red letters of the, of the Bible. The, the, you know, the red letters in the Gospels, those are, in your, if your Bible has them in red, that's the words of Jesus, the actual words of Jesus. I just decided to clear everything out and just read the red letters. And that, I mean, the reason it changed my life was because that became the the, it became the basis of a summer series for us years ago, probably 11 years ago. And then it became the basis of my first, the first published Bible study I ever did, Encounter Jesus. Was, and, I, and I dedicated that book to Leroy because Leroy is the one who said, I realized I knew a Jesus, but I don't think I know the Jesus. And I've been kind of wrestling with that ever since. Or which Jesus do I know? And I think that question actually, I mean, that question, which Jesus is it? Who is it you want? Who is it you want is actually the question that Jesus asked. I just, I just wanted to share that with you before we got to this. Um, this question that Jesus asked of, of the people who came to pick him up when he was in the garden. That last night, um, he was there he, he, um, before he got arrested. I mean, later, later, he would acknowledge himself. The answer to that question that, who is it you want? It's, it's almost impossible to get to on the human level. If you've not been shown by God who Jesus is, if you have not had a supernatural revelation from God himself about who Jesus is, you're not ever going to get to the answer to that question. Jesus himself said it. He says to Pilate, a Roman governor, he, he says this. I want you to read this together. Read this together. Ready? Go. My kingdom is not of this world. Oh, whoops. Let's go back. Go back. There it is. There it is. Nope. Okay. Nope. <laughs> I'm just going to read this for you. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now, my kingdom is from another place. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus told Pilate. My kingdom is from another place. Who can understand that? Who can understand it? Maybe none of us is really prepared for a Messiah who's here but not here, for a king who's, who's got, whose kingdom is intangible but it's ever-present. I mean, I think the faith requirement for that kind of Messiah is crazy high. So we better know who it is we want before we go claiming our allegiance to Jesus. Otherwise, we end up doing stupid things like cutting off somebody's ear or selling out or maybe worst of all, in my opinion, maybe in Jesus' opinion too, I don't know, being indifferent to all of it. Let's not talk about Jesus much because I don't get that part of it. Who is it you want? Who is it you want? That's the question John chapter 18 gets us to wrestle with. Who is it you really want to be your savior? And if Jesus is your answer, are you sure? I mean, is it a Jesus or the Jesus? John chapter 18 is a history chapter. It's not a life lesson. 
John is telling us about something that actually happened, but in the course of telling the story, he shows us how three people who were up close and personal with Jesus all dealt with that one question. Who is it you want? So let's start with Judas. It's John chapter 18. The best way to engage the message is always with the Bible, something to write on, something to write with. If you've got your Bible, turn to John chapter 18, and we're going to read the first seven verses. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. And on the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew, mm, Judas who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. This was a point of no return for Judas right here. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? I want you to underline that. That's verse 4. It comes up twice. Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I'm he, Jesus said. I want you to really hear that. I am, that is an I am statement. John uses I am statements all the way through his, um, his telling of the gospel. I am the gate. I am the, the way, the truth, the life. I am the good shepherd. Um, right here, this is, this is sort of like the culminating I am statement. And it's powerful. It is truth. And you can tell it by the way the people respond. Jesus said, I am he and Judas the traitor standing there with him. Judas doesn't feel it. But when the others, but when Jesus said, I am he, the others drew back and fell to the ground. Truth is powerful. I think this is part of what we're trying to get at this morning is to get away from the, the numbing out that can happen when you've had years of a gospel that may not be all the whole gospel. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Underline it. Jesus of Nazareth, they said. So that's the question John chapter 18 wants to ask. It's a moment. This is a moment in the story of Jesus. And Judas is the one who made it happen. Just to remind you, Judas was one of the 12, part of Jesus' inner circle. He was a leader. He was in charge of the money box, which says either that Jesus trusted him that much or that Jesus cared about money that little. <laughs> Judas was a zealot, part of a radical first century political movement trying to rile up the people in Ju of Judea against the Roman government. He was a political guy who joined Jesus because he saw that same kind of radical in Jesus. So here's what I suspect about him. I suspect that somewhere inside of Judas was something waiting for the punchline. The whole time he was following him, you know, waiting for Jesus to pull the guys aside and tell him his secret plan for the overthrow of the Roman government. Waiting for a Messiah who looked like a warrior king who would ride into town on a white horse and battle on the political level. What Judas got instead was a man despised and rejected who rode into town on a donkey. <laughs> Preaching love, paying attention to people who were pretty much the dregs of society. Judas was all about social justice, but Jesus didn't seem to get the politics of it. There, were no, there was no press, there was no show of power. Just the day in, the day out of Jesus. Jesus, unplugged. Analog Jesus. 
which was not what Judas was looking for. Other Gospels give more insight into why Judas did what he did. Some people say he did it to force Jesus into the political spotlight. Other people say he just, he lost his faith in Jesus. And so he was just trying to get out of this, anything he could get out of this. He sold out for 30 pieces of silver. The Bible says Satan entered his heart. And from that point on, Judas, who thought he was taking back control, actually lost it. Here's what moves me about John's account of Judas. John doesn't tell us anything about the motives of Judas the traitor. John just stands Judas up in front of Jesus, eyeball to eyeball. They don't speak to each other. Not that John notices. In this account of it, Judas just stands there. He just stands there as a witness to what can happen when a man builds a Messiah in his own image. Who is it you want? You can just hear Jesus. I mean, the, the, the mob is out here. And, they're at, and, and, and Jesus is, is asking them, who is it you want? While he's looking in the eyes of Judas. Because this moment isn't about politics. It's not about rebellion. It's not about deception. This is about Judas's personal relationship with Jesus. Who is it you want, Judas? What are you looking for right now? And when those so soldiers say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus says, I am he, and it knocks them off their feet because Jesus, the truth of Jesus, the real Jesus is just that powerful. But J Judas stands there because nothing penetrates him anymore. I mean, he's got a Jesus. He doesn't have the Jesus. And in that way, Judas is not that much different from the average human. Someone who goes looking for God to fit our needs, to deliver us from all our problems the way we want him to deliver us from all our problems. And, and, and when we do that, what we end up with is a lot of disappointment because God won't morph into something he is not just for the sake of our individual comforts. And the ironic thing is this, most of us at the end of the day don't really want what we go looking for. We think we want a Jesus who will agree with us politically or bless us financially or back us up when we blow up and shoot off sideways. But Jesus won't be that and most of us don't really want that. Not really. Not at the end of the day. You know what most of us want? Most of us just want the assurance that the, ones, the one who loves us most will never leave us or forsake us will never betray us. And that is what sets Judas and Jesus at odds. One will never betray us and the other will take every opportunity. The great promise of the gospel is that the Jesus Christ will never lose you. Even on the days you feel a little shaky in your faith. Even when you feel like you've lost him. He won't lose you. Jesus says so. Look at verse 9. John 18 verse 9. Jesus says, I have not lost one of those you gave me. <laughs> 
We can lose Jesus, the Jesus, but Jesus won't lose us. Not if we're willing to set self aside so he can be for us who he really is. I've not lost one of those you gave me, Jesus said. And then Simon Peter, this is verse 9, or verse 10 now. Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus commanded Peter, his eyes cracks me up, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? I just can hear him. Peter, just stop it. Just stop. Don't get in the way of what God is doing here. You want a fixer, Peter, but I am not a fixer. Amen. And there's your lesson right there. Don't get in the way of what God is doing, my codependent friends. Don't get in the way of what God is doing. We do it all the time. If Jesus doesn't bail you out, I will. If Jesus doesn't heal you, I'll figure it out. And, you know, in, in, in Haiti, they say this, that 80% of Haiti is Catholic, 20% of Haiti is Protestant, 100% of Haiti is voodoo. <laughs> because as soon as a person's physical ailment doesn't get healed by prayer, they rush to the voodoo doctor. Don't get in the way of what God is doing. Even his denials, which would show up pretty quickly after this moment of bravado, are Peter's way of getting ahead of Jesus, trying to control his own relationship with Jesus, deciding, you know, when I can, when I can follow Jesus and when I need to pretend like I don't follow Jesus so that everything stays copacetic. He will follow Jesus to the high priest's house while he tells a servant on the way that he doesn't follow Jesus. <laughs> Sure, I'll risk anything for Jesus, but I'm not going to risk my life on this servant person. He'll stand by a fire waiting to find out what the high priest will do with Jesus. And he'll tell somebody he's not a disciple. He'll even tell a relative of the man whose ear Peter cut off. I'm not with them. Somehow Peter can still find a way inside himself to justify denial. And there's my second lesson from this. this. I'm telling you, this is not meant to be a life lesson chapter. This is a history chapter. But my goodness, how often do I deny, deny, deny the Jesus while I justify, justify, justify? Well... When Mark tells his story, he weaves these denials. When Mark, you know, when the gospel of Mark, when Mark tell, is telling the story, he weaves all these denials in with Caiaphas, who was a high priest. You know, the one who first wanted to question Jesus, who's trying to figure out how to kill him. And, um, and, and it's, it's almost as if, if Mark is saying, you know, we might not be the guy who wants to kill Jesus, but we're still capable of rejecting Jesus. Seems to be like maybe what Mark is trying to say, but John doesn't mix those two things together. He does the same thing with Peter that he did with Judas, standing him right up next to Jesus. When Jesus is acting the least like Peter wants him to act. So Peter is forced to deal at this most difficult moment in the whole gospel story Peter is forced to deal with his own personal relationship with Jesus. 
I thought I knew him, but maybe I don't. John doesn't tell us how Peter reacts to his own denials, which leaves us having to figure it out for ourselves. Who is it you want, Peter? Who is it you want? If Jesus is not a fixer, and if Jesus is not afraid of death, and if Jesus, listen to me, if Jesus is not riled by drama, <laughs> then what am I in this relationship for? The last third of John 18 tells the story of Jesus being passed from person to person while the religious leaders try to find somebody who can kill him. They're just looking for somebody who can kill a man. Isn't that crazy? Because they can't legally kill him themselves. So they're looking for somebody to kill him, to stop him, because Jesus is not the Messiah they want. You need to kind of wrap your brains around just how crazy we can justify things. These are religious leaders who, because of the Ten Commandments, they can't kill somebody, but they don't give a rip about somebody else breaking the commandments or where somebody else might live, uh, end up in heaven or hell, where their salvation might lead them to. I just don't want my hands dirty, and I also want the situation to be, fit, to be fixed. And so... They're looking for somebody to kill this man, to stop him, because Jesus is definitely not the Messiah they want. Jesus ends up in the palace of Pilate, a Roman governor whose whole life is a power play. That's kind of what you do. That's how you get to be governor in Rome. <laughs> when I read John's account, I can hear Pilate trying to opt out of this situation. It's interesting that we don't hear a word from Judas, and we don't hear a word from Peter, but we get a whole conversation with Pilate. And, 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 and Pilate actually is trying to make sense of things, at least according to John. He might not see divinity in Jesus, but he doesn't see somebody worth killing. Look at verse 31. Pilate came out to them and he asked, what, what charges are you bringing against this man? Well, if he were not a criminal, they replied, we, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Pilate says, well, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anybody, they, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus himself said about the kind of death he was going to die. This is the Messiah I'm going to be. I'm going to be the kind of Messiah who dies. Pilate then went back inside the palace and he summoned Jesus and he asked them, are you, are you the king of the Jews? And there's a whole reason, there's a whole very reasonable reason why Pilate might have asked that question. Because, uh, you know, in that day... Rule, you know, uh, insurrections kind of rise up from out of nowhere. People would self-proclaim themselves as the leader of these people and then they would try to overthrow a government. And so, you know, it's possible somebody could have risen up from inside the Jews. In fact, the zealots were always looking for that person. It's who Judas was looking for. And so he's just trying to figure it out. I mean, the guy's standing there, this ragtag guy, who has 12 friends who have long since deserted him. Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or does somebody else tell you to say that? Am I a Jew? Peter, Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. So what is it you've done? 
And all right, let's read this together. Then we can do it this time. I know we can do it. Go. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. That's kind of the whole thing. This whole series is called Not of This World because, and, and actually the word of might not even be the best word there. What Jesus is really saying is my kingdom is from someplace else. The kingdom that I am trying to bring here isn't coming from inside me or from inside some group here. If it was coming from inside a group, my people would have done something about it. But it's not coming from inside a group. It's coming from a whole other realm. You are a king then, Pilate says. This is verse 37. And Jesus answered, well, you say I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. And you can hear in that the tired and the indifferent, which makes it just about the saddest question in the whole Bible. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I just don't see a basis for a charge against this guy. But it's your custom for me to release somebody, one prisoner at the time of the Passover. So do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, not him, give us Barabbas. Barabbas had actually taken part in an uprising. He was actually part of an insurrection. Pilate's question is really powerful. What is truth? It feels like a throwaway question when he asks it. But, it, but there he is. There he is standing just like Judas. Who is it you want, Judas? And with Peter... Who is it you want, Peter? And now Jesus stands face to face with Pilate. And the truth Jesus brings him is coming from another kingdom. And Pilate can't get it. He can't get it. So Jesus tries to tell him, I came into this world to bring a thing that stabilizes all the other things. To bring a thing that makes sense of all the other things. I, I came to bring truth. And those who really want truth. Who want what real truth brings them. No matter what that means. Those people, those people will see truth. I mean even your own soldiers, Pilate. When they came for me, they felt it kind of defenseless against it, just fell backward. That's, that's what I've come to, that kind of power, that's the kind of truth I've come to bring. But it's not Pilate's truth. Calvin Klein did a, I don't even know, maybe it's still a thing because I don't watch um, a lot of television, I don't watch a lot of ads, so, but several years ago, Calvin Klein had a really successful ad campaign. Um, and, and, the, and it was, um, I speak my truth. Do y'all know this ad campaign? Anybody? Because you're all Calvin Klein wearers. It's obvious sitting in here. <laughs> Do you know what Calvin Klein is? Let's start there. <laughs> so 
and, and the ad campaign was a bunch of, they got a bunch of um, celebrities to wear Calvin Klein jeans in these ads. And it's just, it's just the celebrity in the jeans. And, and the, the company thought that it would be the celebrities in the jeans that carried the campaign. But it wasn't the celebrities in the jeans. It was that, it was that tagline, I speak my truth. I speak my truth. That never, they said it helped people think not only about the, the celebrity wearing those jeans, but of themselves wearing. They would look at these airbrushed bodies, perfectly digitally altered, wearing these jeans, and they'd think to themselves, that could be me. That could be me. Never mind. None of us have celebrity bodies. That nobody's digitally altering our pictures. We can look at that person wearing those jeans and say, yeah, that's me. That's my truth. That's my truth. And that's fine for jeans, I guess. Although <laughs> I've seen some people who probably should not have looked at the ad too long and thought, that could be me. That, that phrase, I've got to speak my truth, or when we say to other people, well, that's your truth. Go ahead and, go ahead and live your truth. That is a terrible way to have a relationship with Jesus. I think that's what John is after when he tells the very real story of Jesus being arrested. He takes the moment to set Jesus as he walks through this arrest up against three men who are more interested in their truth than his truth. More interested in a Jesus than the Jesus. But here's what Jesus wants to say to them and to us. There is an ultimate truth. There's not your truth and my truth. There might be your opinion and my opinion, but there's not your truth and my truth. There is a powerful, blow you off your feet truth in this world. It's, it, is being, it is being ushered into this world. This kingdom is coming into this world. It is an ultimate truth. And Jesus is the one who ushers this truth into the world. In fact, Jesus is that truth. So who is it you want? Do you know Jesus? I mean, I'm asking you. I'm coming back where we started. What is your personal relationship with Jesus? Not what's your redemption story. Not what happened to you when you got confirmed at 13. Or What is your relationship with Jesus right now? Do you know the Jesus? Are you, are you even attempting to know the Jesus? Or do you know a Jesus who tends to agree with you pretty much on everything? Does any idea of Jesus qualify as reality? Because I think maybe some of us have attached to ideas of Jesus that aren't what Jesus himself said or believed or taught. And the hard thing is that often we don't figure it out. That we've got the wrong idea about Jesus until the most awkward of moments when the stakes are high and our defenses are low. So which Jesus... Who is it you believe in? And who is it we want? This morning, that's, that's what I want to ask you. I just want to ask you. I want to stand you up next to Jesus and ask you to look him in the eye and consider your relationship with him.
really think about it. Would you go ahead just now, just bow your head, close your eyes. This is a moment for you personally. What is your personal relationship with Jesus? And I want to do this just like I did it that night at the Maxwell House 12 years ago. I want to invite anybody in this room who needs this to stand. If you're ready to start a relationship with Jesus or renew a relationship that's gotten off track. If you find yourself confused about the Jesus versus a Jesus or you're questioning God's authority or his, or you doubt his goodness or you've been there and now you're ready to come out of it. If you're ready to make a fresh start, I just invite you right where you are, just quietly stand. If you're not standing, I would just ask you to keep your head bowed, your eyes closed, so that everybody in this room is focused on Jesus, Jesus, nobody else, just Jesus, simply Jesus. circumstances don't move you to stand, then here's what I want to ask you to do now. I want to ask you to sit with Jesus, to sit with him. He's looking you in the face, and you are looking him in the face. And I, and I want your answer in prayer to this question. Jesus is asking you, what is it? Who is it? Who is it you want? Who is it you want? answer. you to please stay in this place. This is a holy moment, a holy moment. I want to ask a couple of you to go stand. Yeah. Because here's what I know, nobody stands by themselves. You just don't stand alone. You just don't. He said it himself, I have not lost one of those you gave me. Not one. Jesus, I want to ask that you would speak deeply into our spirits right now. Among those in this room who 
have some sense of assurance. I am, I am following you, Jesus, as, as faithfully as I know how. And I know I'm not getting it. I know I'm not getting it all right. But I, I, in this moment, I'm, I'm doing my best, Jesus. And I'm telling you who it is I want. And I'm trusting you to purify those thoughts and motives. I'm surrendering my idea of you into your care. And I'm saying to you, Jesus, you, you fix everything that's wrong in my thinking. You fix it, Jesus. I can't know what I don't know. I can't. And Lord, for the one who is ready to say today, I am ready to, to give my life or renew my life. Lord, we just say, thank you for that kind of boldness. He's standing right there in your throne room. And here's your word, Lord. We're leaning on your word. Your word says you're not going to lose anybody that God has given you. And you will never leave us or forsake us. And you'll be with us always, even to the end of the age. Those are promises you have made. And so in the name of Jesus Christ, we say you're forgiven. And in the name of Jesus Christ, we welcome you into the kingdom. Now I'm just going to ask everybody else if you would to stand. Jesus, Jesus, we love you. We worship and adore you. You are worthy, Jesus. You are worthy. You are worthy. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.